guys. I'm Brent. I'm Chris. Welcome to Brett and Chris Talk. That's right. This we are is back again. Our third episode. Oh and thank gosh. you for coming along with us on this adventure. No doubt. And thank you for everybody who has been watching up to date or listening. Really appreciate you guys spending some time with us and hearing us out and also commenting. We've had a lot of great comments, haven't we, Chris? Yeah, the comment comment section on our Facebook page, Chris uh, Brent and Chris Talk. Yeah, has been blowing up recently. It's lit. Yeah, and um, join join the discussion. We encourage you to share articles that support your opinions so we can all understand where you get your information from to better understand each other well. Yeah. And um, don't be afraid to talk about where you're coming from on things. Uh, and the best part is we've been discussing uh, lively, had lively discussion from both sides, comments, uh, criticisms, and I think it's all great. This is awesome. Let's keep it up. Uh, actually, on that note, for our next show, we're going to do a show on pros and cons of President Trump. That's right. And uh, Brent and I do tend to lean more for the cons. Yeah, I mean, I would say that my basis for it is I have more problems with what's going on than not, but at the end of the day, Better there play. are things that we both uh, find that are going right, and we are going to do some research and find out some more of things that can be, you know, not just we think it sounds good and mm -hmm. we think it sounds right, it's actually done great, and I know it's happened, and so we're going to talk about both sides of the coin. And if you have articles that could show us some of the things that you like or don't like, uh, share them with us. Help us uh, make an informed discussion for yep. our next show. And uh, we really appreciate your input. So, uh, Heck yeah. Yeah, in the comments, YouTube, uh, anywhere you can leave comments. Leave us an article you want us to read. Tell us if you like Trump. Tell us if you don't. And we read everything. So believe us. If you put it in there, we'll check it out. Mm-hmm. So. Awesome. I wonder how long we can keep that up. Yeah, well, I mean, at this rate, uh, probably not too long, because it's been more and more each video, so. It's wild. It's and, awesome. Uh, today we're going to take you on a, uh, again, I said an adventure, and I think that's accurate. Uh, we're going to talk about tribalism. Yeah. It's been a popular topic, and... Um, Maybe not called out as such, but an appropriate term is tribalism for what's going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? And, um... There's a lot of people who take a lot of different approaches on it. They are people who claim it is the end of our... It will be the end of our race. There are people who say it is going to be the end of... Um, it gets blamed for a lot of things, let's just be honest. And yeah. uh, we're going to take a look at tribalism, the evolution of it. Yeah. Um, and we're going to pair that with this idea that it is more dangerous today than it has been. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of different contexts from that. You know, the social context, the uh, technology with the way that things have evolved, how we work. I mean, there's so many different things that drive us toward our feelings and, and why we may uh, think a certain way. So I think it's, it's important to talk about over the course of time, from the very beginnings of when humans, you know, we, we start, we existed to today and you know look at the ebbs and flows of how things have changed and you know dive into some studies so you've got a lot of great information that we can pull from uh, varying opinions and I think it's all good material. Now uh, tribalism uh, you have to actually look at the very beginning of our evolution to understand 
tribalism. Yep, uh, that's right. A big part of our evolutionary history was spent in small packs, in small tribes, and we were struggling to survive um, as a civilization at this point. Right, and it's not like, you know, all of a sudden you snap your fingers and the earth is populated, right? We started off on a fairly small area, right? We're talking the African savannah, I think is what the research yeah. had stated. And yeah, we were isolated pockets of um, you know people, and then we're competing with animals, and it's a harsh environment. So you think about it, you're naturally driven to uh, where you, it, it, you can kind of understand this logic today too. You're naturally driven to those that care for you, that want to take, you know, uh, support you and and I think it's those cliques and those that uh, those family groups that allowed for the most successful clans to survive and survival was what drove the you know the next generation and so forth if you didn't survive and that was the end of your line and as we move forward through history as we'll discuss we don't have those same stressors different stressors right right but they're not it's not survival it's same. not survival, yet that need for the conflict, as we'll talk about later, still exists. Yeah, so, we kind of manufacture it to a certain extent for, for a lot of different things. And that's why, <clears throat> I misspoke earlier about tribalism ending race, I meant tribalism ending our society. Um, and Human race, maybe. Human race, yeah, sorry. And what I, I want to hit at is that we're not going, we don't need to not be tribal. I, I don't think that's a thing we will ever achieve. Yeah, we have nature, you know, in the sense that we, we are creatures, right? We we have innate feelings and ways that we've evolved to survive that are, you know, it's just like instinct, yeah, right? right. You, you have certain innate things about you that you really can't, you can, I think some things you can train yourself to um, identify the signs of why you might be thinking or doing a thing a certain way, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, you are what you are, and you're going to express whatever these innate feelings are, they're going to come out in one way or another, uh, regardless of what you do. I think, but being aware of that, there's certain mechanisms, and we'll talk more about yeah. it, but right. just the root of it all, communication, there's, there's this mechanism we have got to exercise in order to make sure that we don't lose sight of the fact that we are all humans, Yep. right? We are all entitled to an opinion, at least in this country, and um, at the end of the day, we should be respectful and communicate those those feelings, but also take perspective. Don't cut off people in conversations that you disagree with. Hear them out and understand, and we'll get into more of that later. I mean, just yeah, exactly. Um, I'm trying not. I'm trying so hard to hold off on the research. It's tough. Uh, let's follow a good flow though, and let's kind of talk about tribalism. In we talked about how it began and how we're not fighting to survive in the same ways that we were uh, for our mere existence. Mm -hmm. uh, but as it evolved and as we became societies and cities and countries grew... Much larger groups. Yep. Right. Tribalism always played a role here. And uh, we were going to talk about some of the like historical examples yep. in America um, where tribalism was on full display for everyone to see. Yeah, there's a lot of great ones. And so, I mean, the the one that really came to mind when we were thinking about how to approach this topic, you know, through history, was uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, right? Yeah. You know, a lot of my research or, or information from this comes from historians that have written books. So, like, uh, John Adams by David McCullough. Um, I, there's um, a professor, Wood, who uh, wrote a book 
about, um, I cannot remember, it was like uh, about Jefferson and Adams being friends, but it was something about being divided. Okay. Friends divided or something like that. Forgive me for the title. We'll make sure that we have that in the uh, information for the post. Um, and then also uh, John Meacham, who wrote The Art of Power, and he's a great historian. For he's us. on uh, Bill Maher's real-time often. Okay, and see, that's awesome. I mean, I love listening to those kind of folks talk. McCullough, too, he's a great storyteller. But these guys have dug into the research and have read the letters that these guys corresponded with. They've read the news articles of the time, diaries from both of these folks, their families, like have done it so much in-depth uh, research that you kind of almost feel like you're in the moment. If I'm not mistaken, Meacham actually spoke at either McCain or Bush's funeral. I don't know if... I'll look so, I mean, I would, I would believe that for sure, though. I mean, at the end very of the day, respected on the right. Yeah, well, I was the I was watching that talk by Professor Wood. I think it's George S. Wood. Um, he was talking to the JFK uh, Presidential Library. So I mean, talk about the the biggest stage for a historian to be presenting their their thoughts and a topic in our nation's capital. So, um, but. So when you talk about Jefferson and Adams, you're talking about two polar opposites on the surface. Like if you were to just look at each guy and take a step back and understand who they were individually, you'd say, well, they will never just, they'll never get along. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jefferson was literally like a celebrity of his time. Mm -hmm. He's like the tall, handsome, movie star kind of guy. Did not have a massive amount of charisma. Like he wasn't a great public speaker. Um, kind of nervous, actually, when he had to get up and talk in front of large crowds, which is that you're thinking to yourself, how did he become president? But it was a different time. That was not necessarily the, the greatest. You didn't have to go on TV and talk to millions of people. Right. Um, so, I mean, but he was a, a thinker, an unparalleled thinker in a lot of ways, um, and well-respected for that. So, I mean, um, you know, he was this great uh, popular celebrity-type figure, very well-liked, but he was also a slave owner from the South. So, I mean, that kind of sets him uh, well apart from John Adams, who's kind of a short, stocky guy. I wouldn't say he was unattractive, but, I mean, he was not like the, the Thomas Jefferson of his day, if you will. So, I mean, uh, you know, you're talking about a guy who thought that slavery was a sin, very religious family, mm -hmm. and, and John and um, uh, Abigail Adams never owned a slave. I think they were the only founding uh, family that never owned a slave and believed it was morally wrong. So, I mean, um, you've got these guys that, just from that perspective, polar opposites. Yeah. And then you got John Adams, who people, they didn't like him a lot of times because they thought he was rude. Like, he just kind of spoke his mind and got it out there. Mm -hmm. um, very, he, he was respected for being honest, and that's why he was such a, a good lawyer. People respected him a lot for his honesty and the hard work he put into providing thoughtful information but he was very aggressive and so people thought he was rude whereas Jefferson was he naturally just avoided all conflict so mm -hmm. I mean you, you got people who you figure Jeff and that happened in their their uh, their time together John Adams would constantly just badger Jefferson and uh, you know harass him about all kinds of things before and after they split huh. um, you know and we'll talk more about that timeline but um, these are, you know, and Jefferson would never respond. He never, like, fought back about it. He would just present his thoughts and, and kind of move on. Um, but, so you got these two polar opposites. Well, what brought them together was their belief in the American Revolution. Hmm. They uh, hmm. both became disenfranchised with uh, the monarchy. You know, we were colonies at the time of Britain. And um, because of that common cause, I believe the Second Continental Congress was where... 
Jefferson had written like a pamphlet and it had been circulating and John Adams read it and it was very, you know, in favor of the revolution and justifying the cause for a lot of reasons and that's when John Adams, I think, was quoted saying, you know, Jefferson is my man. Like, mm. he, you know, was behind him at that point. So even before I think they met in person, they had this connection and I think that was, and that throughout the end of their lives was a connection, the revolution and believing in that cause. That's awesome. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's so amazing. So, despite their differences, this common cause unites people who would not get along. Yeah. You wouldn't even think of them as, if you went into a room full of people at the time, you wouldn't think of them as gravitating toward one another. Sure. It was kind of a very unlikely friendship, you know, and um, I think at the time people even referred to it as such. They were the odd couple <laughs> of, the, of the founding fathers. <laughs> Um, but I mean, so they that would were, be a show. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of the John Adams we had that was based on history, like have him as the odd couple <laughs> in like today's context, that'd be awesome. That would be. That might happen someday. I'm sure it will. Probably not. So Hamilton. You know they were. I know. Yeah. So they were friends, right? From the from the start of that, they went overseas. Um, they served as part of like the uh, American. Um, the representatives over in Europe in France at first and then John Adams moved on to become the minister to London like directly with the king um, so they were they were still allies and at that time uh, while they were over in France Jefferson's wife Polly died hmm. and so that devastated him I mean she was the love of his life hmm. and so the Adamses brought him in to their family like kind of adopted him as part of the family and like he was he ate meals they exchanged gifts for one another um, like they were, he was so like part of the family that Abigail and Jefferson themselves would have correspondence in their own inside. Like they go shopping together. <laughs> um, so I mean, they they were well connected. Um, Abigail kind of took Jefferson's daughter under his his wing too. Um, so I think you know they had this going on for so long. What actually divided them was the fact, or or you know, set them apart in tribes, if you will, was when. Um, uh, well, there's a couple of things. They they dis they disagreed about how the new government should be formed. Um, John Adams believed that the British Constitution and forms of government, because they have a, a central executive, the right. monarch, they've got the House of Lords and the House of Commons. He thought that was a good model. Yeah, parliament, um, parliament. And I think it was Madison who said, you know, that's not only a great, you know, but Adams said, you know, but it's it's corrupt. That's the problem with it. You know, people. Uh, the king buys out the House of Commons, um, I can't members of Parliament, by mm -hmm. giving them royal appointments and whatever else, and so they'll they'll vote in his favor. And so Adams thought, just take the corruption out. Where Madison's like, no, you need the corruption in. That's how it makes it run. Yeah. So I mean, you had all these conflicting views, and then Jefferson thought both of them were insane. Like they had this dinner and they were all talking about this, and he's just <laughs> like appalled by what they're saying <laughs> sure. altogether. He thinks you should just wipe it all clean and start from scratch. Yeah. Which. If you think about it, he was the author of the Declaration of Independence. Sure. So, I mean, that was kind of his mindset. Parliament, the parliamentary, yeah, parliamentary government, so I'm getting that right, is, is way more prevalent than democracy. I mean, it's still a sure. democratic form, but it's not, it's not what we got going on. Yeah. Like, ours is a very unique thing. We have the longest-lasting democracy. Correct. And it's changed over time, too. When they uh, first formed the... Uh, government with the House representatives and the Senate, the senators weren't necessarily seen as equally representative because they're not called representatives. Hmm. They were just um, 
they were seen as kind of a upper house. There's fewer of them, so they're, you know, it was kind of an elite group. House of Lords. Right. Yeah. Today, though, it's evolved over time. Yep. It didn't take long, but it, did, it evolved over the course of time, you know, 20, 30 years to where, you know, like today, we just take it for granted. They are just as representative as senators. They're more powerful. We can't disagree. They're on different types of committees, and it takes... Um, there's different rules to how they vote, and I don't want to get into all that. You know, we'll talk about the government at length at some other uh, podcast. But, um, you know, so so Jefferson, Adams, you know, thought to himself, you know, the new government should be based on the British. And then Jefferson's like, no, we should wipe it clean and start fresh. The other thing that drove them apart was the French Revolution. Um, hmm. Basically. Uh, Happening right after ours. Correct. And Adams was president, had asked Jefferson to be a part of his cabinet. Jefferson refused because he he knew that they fundamentally disagreed about a lot of things. And Jeff, Adams was a federalist, and yeah. Jefferson wanted to be part of the burgeoning or up-and-coming Republican Party. Yeah. So uh, at the end of the day, that kind of like set the tone for them to be split. And as soon as the French Revolution happened... Uh, Adams was just appalled again. He's you know because they were it wasn't done in an orderly fashion. The people were just slaughtering yeah. the aristocracy right and left, just killing it's them. Not like Les Miserables. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, it was. There was nothing nice about it. Um, you know, and, and a lot of innocent people died too, just because I think people were settling scores. Um, so you have that context. Jefferson thought it was wonderful. Jefferson believed that we would have continuous revolutions over the course of time, and thank God we didn't. Um, you know, because it would just be chaos, I think. But, you know, Jefferson, I think, was very much a revolutionary at heart, and it's kind of what drove things that way. Um, but in the end, what brought them back together when they were older was the fact that they had this revolution. They were both kind of thinking about the revolution in retrospect, like the, the legacy of the revolution. And I think it was Benjamin Rush, a common friend, of you know, kind of got them back together and talking after 12 years of not talking at all. Um, and so, you know, they, they uh, you know, I think the point of all this discussion, at least with these two, is the fact that because, um, you know, they were such uh, polarized people in terms of their, their backgrounds, their beliefs, um, you know, what they stood for, but at the same time could have common ground and, and be friends, like true yep. friends, I think... That speaks a lot to the fact that they respected one another, yep. you know, as, as individuals um, and truly believed in what they wrote into the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. That, you'll read historic, historians say that Jefferson did, or Adams didn't believe it exactly that way, which, but for the context of this conversation, they, they were united in that document, in the Constitution, in the union of this nation. So I'm going to try to ask this question then do you think like you could say they accomplished more when they were willing to set aside those differences and work together oh absolutely they accomplished the declaration they, of independence right. okay they accomplished the articles of uh confederate er, um uh the constitution yep. uh, bill of rights like all of those things that they were united in in working those with those um and not just them i mean we're talking about uh, Continental Congress is yeah. arguing this out in massive groups with these two central figures represent you know a great example of how they were able to, to work through that and come up with this system that has survived to this day. Have we changed it? Yes. Will we continue to change it? Yes. They lost the common enemy. Correct. They removed that, had a common cause. That's absolutely right. And that's, that's the reoccurring theme we're going to see here today is that when we have a common enemy we're able to bring tribes together in a way that 
benefits everybody. Yeah. And um, and for the right reasons. You know, we're not trying to calm the other tribe. It's it's trying to figure out how how do we get along and work toward what we all need. Yeah, it's communication. I mean, it's like a silly thing, but it's the most important thing. Um, and when communication breaks down, we see we see us fall apart. Uh, and um, man, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, that's a great. It's a great story. Well, great little anecdote. As you guys can tell, I like history, so I mean, there'll be more of that to come. But we got to talk about some more history. I we? know. So I, I went, I went to the 1950s, if we will, um, and I'm gonna do a look at communism or communism in America, which is true, but mainly McCarthyism. Yep. So uh, that era. I like how Brent's off script. He's better at this than I am. That was good, buddy. Hey, I'm trying. That's good. I right. practiced this. I spent all last night. I didn't sleep at all. I just kind of sat up and thought about how to respond to you and manage with my, my flow, good. right? It's, it's good. Very formal. It's good. This I, is CNN. I have to be more on book here. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so, in July of 46, admits the labor strikes. Yep. Uh, Truman's attacks on the Soviets. Yep. And uh, all that's going on. Now, two secret set, documents. Set the context. Yes. Yeah. Now, amidst all this, two secret documents are are leaked. And um, this leftist journal and Canada both charged that 22 people had conspired to steal information about the atomic bomb for the Soviet Union. Mm. So, the House... Uh, subcommittee recommended a federal loyalty program, which in the Truman Doctrine, you have like this two parts to the Truman Doctrine. Uh, part one was confronting communism, and to do that, they would look at your associates, the clubs you were a part of, the people you associated yeah, with. A background check. Very intrusive. Yep. And the second part was you had to sign a loyalty pledge. Yep. And this was to work for the federal government, but this loyalty pledge picked up and it was picked up The whole thing was driven by like an executive order, right? Like yeah. Truman actually signed off on this program. The Truman Doctrine. Yep. Yeah. Is 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 what does this. So um that election that election year forty six, um Republicans won 54 House seats. Wow. And as we're like looking at the Democratic race from 2016, uh, or I'm sorry, 2018, the congressional races. Oh, sure. Yeah, like 50, 54, that's a big. Oh, yeah, it's a landslide. That's a for landslide. Sure. For sure. Now, they that's also want 11 seats in the Senate. Yeah, again, that's, that's a huge portion. One control of both houses. Wow. Among these people, we have a gentleman from Wisconsin uh, whose name is... Joseph McCarthy. That's right. So Republican. Yes, Republican man. And um, there's a lot to talk about here, but McCarthy rose to power with the Red Scare, yep. thinking that everyone was communist. Or um, being suspicious of it, right? Had to be researched, analyzed, figured out. Let's find those communists. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so in 52, he becomes the chair on the Committee of Government Operations of the Senate. And uh, he basically uses this position to terrorize people, calling them communists. He he claimed he had lists. Yep. Never published. Right. But he had lists yep. of, of communist sympathizers yeah. in the government. I read Nixon did like the same kind of thing too. Right. Never showed the evidence, but 
claim to have it. Yep. And, Secret communists. And he would attack anybody who would attack him. And the media then, like the like Hollywood, um, news companies and stuff, they started making people sign loyalty pledges too. Like this became almost like a hysteria yeah. of gotta find the communists. Commies. And um, there were mass hearings where, like even Ronald Reagan had to come in because uh, he was president of the Screen Actors yep. Guild. I'm not sure if he was right then and there, but he, he was, was an actor. Yeah, and he was having to testify to Joseph McCarthy. Yep, and basically prove your Americanness. Yes, exactly. And they were not looking just at you. They would look at your friends or your family. Did they have communist ties? Did they even go to a party that sympathized with the communists? Yep. You could be intimidated basically with that fact too. They know who your families are and associates are. There were 10 Hollywood celebrities that refused to testify. And they said things like, it's a shame that I have to tell you how un-American this is. And they were arrested, and they were blacklisted. Yep. Um, they lost their jobs, along More. with so many other people. Yeah, hundreds were jailed, right? Like thousands, tens of thousands, it, are reportedly, have been, like ruined their lives. Ruined lives, and um, like prominent people too. Like one of my favorite um, figures throughout history is J. Robert Oppenheimer. Oh yeah. And he got caught up in this. So, yep. like, he helped create the the two bombs that yep. we drop on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Nagasaki. Yep. And uh, Manhattan big, Project. Yes, exactly. And uh, Fat Boy or Fat Man, Little, Little Boy. Boy. Yes, that's right. And plutonium. Uh, plutonium and um, I can't remember the other one. I, I don't want to be too specific because if we do that, we may have the government after us. I think so. But the government <laughs> then, uh, the scientists found out that there was a way to do it with hydrogen. Yep. And it was going to be like way more powerful. Yeah, there were two different types to start with. I can't remember the other one. It was like some kind uranium, of... Uranium. Plutonium and uranium. Okay, yeah. Were the two they used in... You have to start. Yeah, and then they wanted to do hydrogen, which was massive and... Way more uh, powerful. They didn't want to do it, but the president pushed them into it. Yep. And, uh, like, Truman, or, uh, sorry, Oppenheimer has this great quote after he saw the bomb test in uh, Los Alamos, uh, the Los Alamos desert, saying, like, it made him think of the... Uh, Yep, a poem. Uh, the text. Something yeah. I have become death. The destroyer of worlds. Yep. And he talks about how. What a terrible quote. <laughs> yeah, how we. I'm getting off. I'm so sorry, but McCarthyism is really cool. He uh, he said, you know, like, we've learned this great power, but we are still just the same humans. Yeah. And Who are we to have deserved this? Like, he truly believed that they had created something that shouldn't have existed. So McCarthy. <laughs> yeah, let's get back to that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he he's going to town here, and he's getting very very confident yep. because things are going his way, and the American public is not getting a lot of insight into this because he's not on television very much. Right. Different time. Different time. They'd get snippets, uh, little clips and stuff. Yep. Um, they like publish things, and I think there was posters that I ran into in my research. You know where. McCarthy would say things about, you know, don't go supporting communist studios and entertainment media companies that, you know, that's just spreading the disease of communism kind of thing. Right. Now, on March 9th, 54, yep. 1954, on a show called See It Now, a host uh, named Edward R. Murrow. Yep, cool guy. Cool guy. Very cool guy. Like, oh, go YouTube. Edward R. Murrow. Look at his, he did a 
30 he devoted a 30 minute program just on McCarthy what he said he he like would show video he would read the actual words. transcripts yes yep. and yeah, he did all the research just did the facts and then he said at the end if Mr. McCarthy uh, would like to come on to our program and refute any of this we yeah. will offer talk him about the things open invitation so McCarthy does this like response in a video and like Edward R. Murrow being like pardon me, but, like, the original badass in That's this, for sure. he, he does this, like, rebuttal video, and he says, since McCarthy has chosen not to provide any facts, he obviously must agree with everything we presented. <laughs> and it's like a mic drop moment. Yeah, it is so awesome. <laughs> and um, if you look on, I think it's, like, Wikipedia or some other website, uh, I'll find it, but they, uh, they claim it as, like, the downfall of McCarthy. Sure, sure. Now... I'm doing this research, and I'm starting to think, man, is the left the McCarthy of the new era? Right. And, like, because I, I, I can see where we're attacking people for the Russia investigation. Oh, yeah, stuff connections. Like, like, any possible thing we could do to tie that to someone we don't potentially like. There is a difference. I would argue there's a difference with the information that we're pre presented. Like, there... Well, there's a lot. It's information overload. There's disinformation. It's all of our intelligent... A, uh, all of intelligence agencies are backing yeah. these claims of the Russian meddling now. So um, we know for a fact. I mean, it's been testified under oath that the Russians meddled. Yeah, we're getting off topic again. It's okay. It's important. But, <clears throat> at the end of the day, there's that fact, and then we know for sure that certain people within the Trump campaign, and I'm sure the uh, Clinton campaign too, sure. were talking to adversarial type entities. Now. Some of them were Russian. I know that there was that was proven for sure on the Trump side. I don't know about the Clinton side, but the Clintons, no, nobody was innocent in any of that. Everybody was trying to find dirt on anybody the way they could. Yeah, the opposition and trying research. to keep it arm's length where nobody could figure out exactly where it was coming from. If you guys would watch a show on the Steele dossier or the Mueller report oh, and yeah. what it didn't cover, what it did actually say, we, we researched would, it. We would about love it. to do that show for you. Yeah, but tell us if you're interested. If not, we don't want to beat a dead horse. Exactly. It's, it's been on the news a lot. Mueller's been beaten. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's the dead horse. So, McCarthy. Yeah. Going strong, Red Scare going good, lots of people afraid, jobs being lost. Murrow comes after him. Murrow comes after him on March 9th. Then uh, from April to June in 1954 comes the Army hearings. And this is where McCarthy starts, well, this is where McCarthy goes too far. He accuses the Army, the U.S. Army, of being communist sympathizers. And this is mainly because they promoted a dentist that had ties to some communist sympathizing group. Sure, loose, loose ties. So the army gives this dentist a lawyer, as they would, and McCarthy, and, and these are televised hearings, this is big news, yeah. McCarthy chooses to go after the lawyer's integrity. And he accuses the lawyer of employing a man who had ties to a communist sympathizing group. And this lawyer just kind of like leans his head down, distraught. I mean, very distraught, and says, Have you no sense of decency? Sir, at long last, have you left no sense of honor? And wow. this is like televised, and it was devastating. McCarthy's charge did not stick, and he ended up getting censured. Uh, wow. Yeah. Congress censure is a big deal. Very few times have... have 
they used that power. And um, so he loses. <laughs> he doesn't get reelected. Yep. He dies, I think, three years later. He died in 57. Wow. Um, so Talk about being crushed. 54, yeah, all this happened. He gets censured in 54. A lot of bad things happen from that guy's uh, doing, though, so. Yeah. Terrible. Wikipedia claims that the Army hearings were the end of the McCarthy era. Yeah. I think it, I mean, it's so far from now, too, I think, for the purpose of this, I think we've made it, you know, clear that those kind of things, it gets stirred up over and over again, right? Different topics drive people to this tribalism where it's like a hysteria and everyone's out looking for who could be, uh, you know, with the enemy. During during that time, people were writing books. A guy named Arthur Miller, that's why I brought this up. Miller, maybe. Never know. Never know. He wrote a book um, that drawed parallels between McCarthyism and the Salem Witch Trials. Oh, sure. Yeah, well, the way they conducted them, they were. <laughs> and again, I have to point out that this was a lack of communication. People were afraid. They were not talking to each other. They literally were so afraid to have a logical discussion that they would be blacklisted or fired or considered a sympathizer that it shut down communication. Right. It shut down... Well, the, the other side wasn't discourse. willing to hear it. Right. Right? So you think McCarthy, even if they were... To, uh, yeah, so what if I, I've listened to a speaker on the communist topics? I wasn't interested. I think capitalism was the right way. What if that's true? He was never going to listen to any of that. No. You've listened to that, you're done. You're going to jail. Are you losing your career or your life? Yes, exactly. Now, McCarthy's uh, chief counsel during the Army hearings was a guy named Roy Cohn. <clears throat> now, Roy Cohn was also um, uh, one of the prosecutors in the Rosenberg uh, trials, which... Rosenberg's yeah. got accused of well they were I mean they yeah, were spying for Russians Ethel Rosenberg atomic secrets. has pretty much been cleared um, Ethel Rosenberg's brother actually lied because he even said I wasn't going to sacrifice my wife for my sister in an interview he did years later wow. it, it gets cold anyway so uh, Roy Cohn did not know that one Roy Cohn yeah it's graphic uh, Roy Cohn is this guy and he was the prosecutor he was the one who claimed that he pushed for the death sentence of the Rosenbergs he's very proud of this he went on to be McCarthy's chief counsel during these yep. hearings this grandiose and stuff so McCarthy dies but Roy Cohn goes on to live this life as a lawyer. He becomes a political fixer. He gets ties to the mob and stuff like that. Wow. 1970s, he's in a bar in New York. I think it's called Le Club. And um, in walks Donald Trump. Ah. I thought Roy Cohn sounded familiar. Roy Cohn goes on to be Donald Trump's personal mentor and lawyer. Wow. He helped... Uh, Donald Trump deal with his first government lawsuit when him and his dad got accused of uh, not oh. renting to yep. uh, minorities. Yep. And uh, Roy Cohn was a very influential man in Donald Trump's. I knew the name sounded familiar. Yeah, in Donald Trump's wow. life, and it's, and I just think there's a lot of. Common ties. Interesting connections, to like, say the least. Think about how Donald Trump attacked the intelligence agencies. How is that not similar to McCarthy attacking the army? And look what happened to Trump. Nothing. Yeah. I, it, well, I think there's that's a whole different it is. topic I, of discussion in terms of how that is perceived and, and uh, reacted to. 
you know? Yes. Um, so Cone, just a, one interesting thing. Him and McCarthy are also attributed to something called the Lavender Scare, ah. in which hundreds, if not thousands, of homosexuals were uh, forced out of their jobs for being gay or, you know, and working for the government and stuff yep. like that. Roy Cohn died of AIDS in 1987 and was never married. And uh, interesting, there's an inter interview with Roger Stone and... Uh, Roger Stone says, oh, Roy Cohn wasn't gay. He just had sex with men. So. Okay. Just leave you with that one. We'll leave you with that one. But, <laughs> you know, and that's why I think McCarthyism is such out. an important thing to talk about, though, because, yeah. like, one of the chief counsels was an advisor and a mentor to our president. Yeah. The mentality of fear-mongering without evidence and all this stuff came from somewhere and uh, the thought that it could be used as a tool you know yeah exactly now uh, two things cool out of McCarthyism it was really one of the first times that television played a big role in bringing down somebody yep. um, Moreau's report was huge in actually stating the facts and going after it and people try to draw comparisons to the way CNN did this thing where they said a Murrow moment with Trump and it was all these different political correspondents sitting down with Trump and discussing his things, but you know, I, there was a big difference. Murrow was doing something in a time where that wasn't very prevalent. Yeah, he wasn't trying to make not. You didn't have tons of people doing that with that platform and that format. Exactly. So they weren't being inundated with lots of information or misinformation. Correct. And today, regardless of who you get interviewed with on both sides of the perceived aisle, right, yeah. with the different media companies, I think that you're always going to have people saying, well, they walked him into that, they're misinterpreting that, that headline's not what he said, like, I, or he or she, it, it applies across the board. So I think at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, there's so much information, good or bad, that's out there that causes us to, I don't know, be driven to picking sides and sticking to them. I really do want to point out that it was shining a light on McCarthyism, shining a light on Joseph McCarthy when they put the television and the camera in those hearings and Americans got to see his bullying tactics and stuff like that. He was attacking people, yeah. Turned people off. Right. I don't, I, that's a sense of decency we have lost, it seems. Well, at least, um, <laughs> it's like you say, we were talking earlier about manufacturing problems. I don't know if there was ever, where it really was a problem with us being not aggressive enough or I don't know if that's the right word to put it, but I think people wanted a big change after the last administration and whatever base elected President Trump has basically latched on to his approach and style. I mean, throughout those debates, I think the Republican debates is what started it, when he yeah. was tearing people down right and left, people well, got... From the time he announced his presidency. People got, um, I don't know, latched on to that as... This guy can get things done. He's going to bulldoze his way through and make it happen. I have guesses for this. I have reasons and rationale that okay. I'd like to dive into. Let's do this. So, um, the very first article that I, I really love is this one called Moral Outrage, Why We Attack Each Other. And it's by a gentleman named Rob Henderson. Okay. Uh, a lot of the information we said at the beginning I actually got from his article. Um, but he quotes a gentleman in this article where he says, and I use this quote, this article is already shared to our Facebook page. Um, it's like a secret clue this was coming. Uh, he says, we long for conflict, but we can be more vigilant 
about how we satisfy that need. Mm -hmm. And like, we're going to be tribal. We're going to have these things. Um, so another quote from this was a guy named Francis Fukuyama. Yeah. And he said, if man cannot struggle on behalf of a just cause, then he will struggle against the just cause. Hmm. And that's what it was with McCarthyism. Like, that was an... Un manufacturing the problem. It was manufacturing the problem. We didn't talk about the fact that he never really came up with, through that mechanism and, and those... McCarthy hearings. uncovered zero communists. Communist. Zero. And it changed so many people, um, so many people's views and everything. It's, uh, he claims, uh, Rob Henderson claims we're in an um, outrage culture, uh, in that anger is now a form of feeling commitment. That when you're broken off into your tribe now, we have to prove that if you're yelling at something, I'll yell at it too. Yeah. It shows that I'm willing I, to fight for it. Then I'm willing to fight for That's it. It's interesting. He says media companies have an incentive to rile people up. It's good for their ratings. Right. We're people like to see that. Our basic instincts are being preyed upon. <laughs> That's very interesting. Now, uh, outrage culture he defines as the calamitization of the mundane. So, like, the producers egging people on to make normal situations in life be attractive through that. Yes, okay. and that's why he cites the earlier talked about evidence we discussed about how we've evolved uh, to experience hardships together. The prehistoric stresses like warfare no longer exist and now we create artificial ones. Hmm. And he calls this notion concept creep. Okay. Like uh, as we become more safe as we become more secure uh, from our environments and whatever things else, we still have this moral outrage. We still have this need for conflict and stress that is with us from the beginning of our so evolution. So we were programmed history. to deal with it, so we're sitting there saying to ourselves, okay, well, where's my stressors now? How am I going to... And we've all, I think, if you think about it, we've all blown things out of proportion, and I think that makes some sense to me, that that could be the mechanism causing that. Yeah, we long... We long for fighting. We long for tribes. Um, and that's the thing he says. Uh, two reasons we calamitize the mundane is um, we evolved for stress and conflict. Hmm. You know, we, were, we evolved to deal with the animals. Every step, we've always had stress and conflict. Yep. So we've evolved to deal with that. Yep. The other thing about us and reason we calamitize things is we long for tribes. We long to be a part of something. Oh, yeah. Teams, love sports, competition. So we're basically evolved to be angry at something and to want you to be mad with me at it. Yeah. Like it's... And we were, I think, and I'm not quoting anything, research or whatever, but you're, you can just kind of tell, like, when you're in a setting, you're drawn to people that are like you, that look like you, that are the same sport team. I mean, you think about it. If you're a, a person who's wearing a Cardinal or Cubs shirt and you see someone else wearing one, you're going to say, hey, how about that game? Or, wow, they suck, or whatever the case may be. You're just kind of compelled to be a part of that, that club. No, I'm really glad you said that because there was these great studies done. Same article still. Okay. Um, and it was a dot experiment where 50% of the dots were blue. Well, actually 50 dots were blue, 50 dots were purple. Okay. Now, throughout the experiment, the scientists would adjust the dots to be slightly more in between. And what happened was all of a sudden the people started to expand their definition of blue. They would they would look for it and they would find it. Huh. Um, another study, they were shown faces 
and there would be different kinds of faces. There would be different expressions, different expressions yeah. Yeah, including neutral, hostile, happy. And when they were removed, they slowly would remove the hostile ones. All of a sudden, people would start to judge the neutral ones as hostile. Like trying to find that small, slight frown in a neutral expression. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. <clears throat> and um, we are programmed to, to do these things. Sure. To look for information. Nonverbal cues, people could just pick up on it. Like, we were evolved to do that, and it's not, it seems like it would make sense logically, too. I mean, you know, it, you need to be able to interpret someone's feelings to know how to react. And you think about it, if you were in the savannah and you came across another human being, you'd, probably, you'd be trying to predict how they're going to react to that um, and what you're going to do to either counteract or escape or whatever it might be. So that makes sense to me. The, there was a study done. This is uh, from The Guardian. It's uh, how the political tribalism can be explained. Mm -hmm. And a study was done in Northeastern University, which is in Boston, which found uh, they taught people how to file a certain way. Okay. And then the scientists would introduce somebody to this person they've taught to file. And half the people were told to do it the same way, file in the same manner. The other half were told to do it in a different manner, but all of them were told to cheat a little bit on how they filed. Okay. And the study found that the people who they taught to, to file were more likely to call out the cheaters of those who filed differently. Okay. And the people who filed like them, they were more likely to overlook. And this is... Another one of us, so we'll let you have a pass. This is like a knee-jerk reaction. These are huh. not... This isn't your best friend Nothing important. you're sticking yeah. up for. This is like, yes, trivial stuff. And we're just genetically wired to form tribes, to form likeness. Hmm. Um, they did another one with kids, too, which I thought was interesting. Uh, the study... Uh, they looked at another study called Reflexive intergroup bias in third-party punishment. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. I've been having fun reading these articles, <laughs> let me tell you. Uh, now, the study found that third-party punishment is subject, subject to intergroup bias. Okay. Okay. So, where people in the out-group are punished more severely. Oh, sure. Okay. So, if you have to be punished and you're part of my team, I'm going to punish you more lightly than somebody who's not part of the team. Yes. Now, I got you. But the study finds that this is a reflexive judgment. Um, and that if you're given time to actually think about it and given time to analyze the data and stuff, that you don't do this as much. And again, I'm going to draw... More information allows you to make a better conclusion. And time. Time. And again, it's the understanding. It's the communication. It's communication yep. without communication but empathy um, all these things so the notion this is a quote from Daniel Judkin the notion that people are inherently tribal should come as no surprise to those familiar with human evolution homo sapiens spent much of their evolutionary history in small bands on the African savanna competing with other bands for scarce resources as a result tribal competition is written into our DNA sure harping back to the beginning gotta survive Yes. So, and again, if you give people time to deliberate about the decisions, they were far less likely to punish the in-group and out-of-group members differently. Sure. Like a jury. Like a jury. That makes sense. Uh, you like Joe Rogan? Oh, I love Joe Rogan. So, uh, Joe Rogan did a podcast with Jordan Peterson. I really do. Uh, I'm partial to Jordan Peterson. Watch him for yourself. 
see what you think. I think he's got a funny story because he came out against a bill that was restrictive to free speech, I'll take that line on it, in Canada, that was going to force you to use proper pronouns for people of transgender. And he just said that was against his free speech, and uh, he fought it. So it was like the Republican people... Uh, I don't want to use the word Republican, but the... Conservative. Yeah, and like the young, adolescent, the people who are... I don't know the right word. I'm going to offend people. I'm not trying to. But the the young people who are rowdy, uh, they, <laughs> <laughs> they were like, yeah, he doesn't like transgender people, and that's cool for us. And then all of a sudden it came out like, no, he just is against any restraints on his free speech. Right. And that all Regardless of this information of is... is driven by data and all this stuff and like the left hated him because the right loved him and now the right doesn't <laughs> like him and because he's trying to say no i mean everybody i don't like any of you guys yeah. I'm not, like, picking any side so i would encourage you um check out jordan peterson to see for yourself uh he jordan peterson was on joe rogan and uh the video is called points on modern tribalism mm-hmm so um peterson says that the consequence of not talking is fighting and political preference, he claims, is influenced by your biological temperament. That creative types tend to lean left, and orderly people tend to lean right. Sure. Just, that's something his study, which I, I don't know where he got the evidence from, but I do trust him. Sure. Um, now, creative types uh, being left and orderly people being right, they are both needed. Like, just because they're different... Right, there's nothing wrong with having your side or your team, your perspective. Absolutely, nothing wrong with that. Yes, um, when it works, keep going. If it change, if it you know isn't working, you need to change it. Yeah. Jordan Peterson claims the left and right need each other. That the <laughs> he claims the liberals start companies and the conservatives run them. I like that quote. That's funny. I, I do too. I I'm fine with that too. Honestly, uh, he says if the business is on track, hire conservatives. If the track needs change, bring in liberals. Yeah. So, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, and you can kind of see how that would not uniformly apply. But, I mean, it's a, a good principle. A funny quote, but a good principle. Peterson talks about the way out of tribalism, and he says, we're never going to get out of it, but there's a, a better way to deal with it. And sure. he kind of lays it out in three steps. Like, like the being first, educated, making a decision on how to deal with it. Yeah, yeah he says, like, you know, you, when you're born, you're in your parents' tribe. And then there comes a time where you have to go out and form your own tribe. And maybe it's like people who play music together. Yeah. Or maybe it's people who work the same place you do or whatever. But you, f you find a new tribe. You join that tribe and you become socialized in that. You learn the norms and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But he says, that's not where it ends. You have to then do the next step, which is differentiate from the tribe while knowing how to behave within the tribe. And he's talking about being an individual. Right. He's talking about individualism and... Informed decisions. Right. And, and I love the thing he talks about, the analogy. He talks about conservatives by nature don't change. I mean, right. that they're conservatives. What's working is working. But as long as there's individuals in their party that can push them to a new level when it's not working, they continue to exist. Right. Exist. Right. Evolve. Evolve. Yes. Now... Again, I feel like this is all very abstract, but I, in a sense, but in mean, a sense, I'm trying to point out that it's the communication, it's the the ability to take in other people's perspective, be open to that communication, and then make an informed decision, not just stick with the historical norms of the tribe 
and apply those uniformly in the future. Right? You gotta be willing to consider if your perspective is wrong. If you can never ever consider if your perspective is actually wrong, then how are you ever gonna evolve your your way of thinking? You're just gonna be stuck in a rut. Yeah. Makes sense. Right. And so after nine eleven, I feel like we're moving through history a little bit. Nine eleven. Kind of back to that. Yep. There was a kind of a resurgence of conservative, um, conservative people doing like a rebranding of McCarthyism. Okay. And uh, there's this quote. Uh, it's in the University of Virginia State Law. McCarthy era offers cautionary tales for post uh, 9/11 America, in which this uh, the quote says conservatives' recent revisionist take on Joseph McCarthy as a political hero glosses over the past and fails to take into account the widespread damage which his witch hunt for communists inflicted upon Americans and which was an inappropriate response well beyond the scope of the threat. <laughs> and this was said by uh, Jeffrey Stone. And um, yeah, I think that's a re the reoccurring theme here. That when we stop talking to each other, and when we let fear rule out, yep. we tend to make... Well, they make, make them the enemy, you know? Yeah. Whoever's the opposing view becomes the enemy. The bad guy. So, at the beginning of the show, we said why it's more dangerous now than ever. Oh, yeah. And, um, today's climate. Today's climate. And there's this great study with its fun. It's by a guy named Robert D. Putnam. Okay. And it's called Bowling Alone. Uh, Robert Putnam, for if you want to know a little more about him, he developed the two-level game theory, which is in international agreements, they will only be successfully brokered if if the uh, if the domestic if there's domestic benefits. Sure. So both sides have to win. Yes. Yep. I get you. So again, author of Bowling Alone, which was a study, eventually it became a book, uh, and he argues that there's been a collapse of social capita since the 50s. And by social capita, he's talking about social engagements, going to a PTA meetings, going to a city council meeting, going to a political rally, parades. Okay. Anything where you're socializing. Socializing and bowling, as the article so uh, so nicely says. And he claims that that decline in social capital since the 50s has had dramatic results. Um, he states that voting turnouts from the 60s to 2000 has, has fell nearly a quarter percent. Yep, people are disenfranchised. Yep. Yes, tens of millions of Americans have forsaken their parents' habitual readiness to engage in the simplest act of citizenship. Yeah. Taking some quotes out of the article. For various reasons, but yeah. Right, and he talks about that. The The Roper organization, it poses identical questions to national samples ten times a year. They've been doing this uh, from 1973 to 1998, so pretty big time. The percent of people who attended a public meeting, town, school affairs, had fallen from 22% in 73 to 13% in 98. Wow. Also in that time, the percent of Americans who said they trusted the government went down. <laughs> Um, and they're not doing themselves any favors, but yeah. Okay, so the question was posed to them. They trusted the government in Washington. Only sometime, almost never, rose from thirty percent in nineteen sixty-six to seventy-five percent in ninety-eight. Wow. So distrust in the government had skyrocketed since nineteen sixty-six. But this was again piggybacking the McCarthy era. Yeah. 
And it wasn't that long afterwards where, you know, people started, you know, down that path. I think it was... Well, it certainly he, didn't... there was the scandals, there was assassinations, there was Vietnam, oh, Watergate. Yeah. A ton of things. Um, and he says Iran Gate, which we need to do a show on that, too. Oh. <laughs> if we can do a whole show on Iran. Uh, There's a lot to unpack there. Now, Definitely. It, in this time, everything declines. Religion declines. Unions declines. PTAs decline. Volunteering declines. Yep. Boy Scouts decline. Makes sense. The, uh, in 1975, the average American would have a friend over 15 times a year. In 2000, it's less than half that. I believe it. Yeah, I mean, you think about it. Today, we, we have so much more technology and things that engage us. Um, you know, and I, think, I feel like people... I don't know how to put this in the right words, but um, it feels like people are all about, a lot of people are about um, understanding themselves more and doing more things for themselves, Yeah. which I feel like in the past, more people were about taking care of the family group and doing more better for all versus themselves, even though we weren't like a communist or, um, you know, a, a civilization that was like focused like on the, the many versus the few kind of thing. But I think at the end of the day, um, just the nature of how we interact with one another and how we're sitting on our phones all day long yeah. and texting and yeah you know, we were talking about this earlier it's really easy to get online and criticize people and you know join a chat room or whatever and be brave online but then in person not be able to look the person in the eye yeah um you know there's some level of engagement and empathy that's lost when you go down that path of differing types of communication you know so like Face-to-face -face uh -huh. is like the premium, premium, primetime, best level of communication. I can read your face and all that. Then you go down like a phone call. Yeah. One step lower. I can't see your face, but I can kind of read the inflections of your voice and get some of that. You go to an email, even less. I got no You're talking about technology. physical connection. Yeah. Technology yeah, just goes down that path. So uh, he claims that Put Putnam blames these declines on three things. The changing in the family structure, which you're kind of talking about. Things aren't designed for single parents. Yep. Um, suburban sprawl. Parents. That yep. was the other thing. If you're spending more time driving to work, driving to shop, you're going to have less free time. Yeah. Like, just a simple thing. You really treasure the time you do have. And you nailed the other one, too, man. Electronic entertainment. I think you literally nailed all three just off the top of your head. <laughs> That's good. And I had the, never hear, heard this. Never, yeah. We try to keep it separate. I hate when radio programs do the fake, oh, I never knew that never before. That. Yeah. Huh. yeah. Have it's, you ever known this, this? And then the other guy's like, well, actually, da da da, da and then provides more facts, and he was supposed to not. Anyways, so uh, we That's don't cool. do that here. Nope. And... Uh, I like the other thing Putman talks about though is how mega churches. Something fights it, yeah. Okay, yeah, mega gotcha. churches during this time did rise. It's one of the only things that did rise. And he talks about how they have a honeycomb structure, meaning there's very low level commitments. And you can go in, you can join for free. The seats are there, the chairs are open, show up, and you're in. But once you're in, they'll try to get you on prayer committees or any kinds of prayer groups or just committees in general. And that which, are related to like what you like. Very small sections okay. of yeah, and they and then you're with those groups and you feel important in those groups, and you spend time with those groups, and all of a sudden it builds the engagement. Huh. Fifty percent of the attendees at mega churches are tithing. Tithing means to give ten percent of your money if you don't know to church, and um, that's huge. Getting fifty percent of your congregation to tithe, and this is. This is during this decline of everything else. So uh, Putnam claims that 
you know, the ability to have a low commitment and go to high commitment is because of the honeycomb structure and that this could be applied to many other organizations. So build, like, low commitment to join, but building the social structure that raises your level of commitment. Yes, huh. because he talks about uh, organizations of today rarely require more than money from their members. Yeah. Like, you don't have to do much. And he, he says they should Most be called, like, yeah. secondary associations or tertiary associations. Because <laughs> they're not real. Not fully fledged engagement. And... I'm trying to build a narrative here, people, but I'm going to point out, since this McCarthy era, we've been declining. We had this strong, like, Jefferson and Adams, there was this willingness to set aside the differences, and they were able to, con like, accomplish so much. Mm -hmm. And it Find was the common ground. when they lost their victim, or lost their, I'm sorry, lost their enemy, yeah. that they... They won freedom, and then we had to form a new government, and then it, it was like, well, I don't agree with how you want to form a new government. Yeah, we should be free, but... We shouldn't have to have uh, the old government that we used to have. So, yeah. So, when it came together, it split back apart. And people are trying to find reasons, like, why tribalism is worse than it is. And um, another guy that's on Bill Maher's show a lot is this Andrew Sullivan. Mm -hmm. And he asked, like, he was talking about religion. And he says it's because we don't have religion anymore that tribalism has gotten so bad. He asked, what happens when this religious rampart of the entire system is removed? And answers, illiberal politics, meaning intolerant or um, unintelligent politics. He claims that we are filling the void that Christianity once owned without any of the wisdom, culture, and resta restraint that Christianity provided. So, okay. So, Christian values? Christian values. And, like, I, I don't tend to agree with this notion because as we've seen that we've always had conflicts like we've always had this inability to like deal with each other uh, he says religious leaders have turned Christianity into a political society and identity that's not a lived faith they have tribalized a religion explicitly built by Jesus Christ as anti-tribal Trump may be the least Christian person in America right now but his Persona met the religious need that their faith had ceased to provide. Interesting. And um, he goes, this is why Christians are so hard to reach and persuade. Uh, nothing that Trump does could... Uh, not, uh, sorry, tr nothing that Trump does or could do changes their minds. You cannot argue logically with a religion, which is why you also can't argue with a social justice activist. He says, we are mistaken if we believe that the collapse of Christianity in America has led to a decline in religion. It has merely led to religious impulses being expressed by political cults. <laughs> so, people wow. are trying to figure out. Like, people are aware that there's a problem. Yeah. And, and they're searching for this answer. And I'm putting forth to you all, fine listeners and viewers, that the problem is this decline in social capita. Sure. That we... Have of some kind. You could find your satisfaction in religion. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But that's not the only... It doesn't have to be religion. Yeah. It does not have to be. And there's always been people who misplace their Christianity into other things. Sure. Um, so, and you can argue that, well, after Trump, there was the largest women's march that there ever was. Right. But the fact of the matter is, a study... Um, love my studies yet they said are the study is called are we more engaged after trump mm -hmm. the answer is no sorry to spoil it 
uh, and it's the, I'm sorry, the article was called The Myth of Civic Engagement During the Trump Presidency. There was actually a record low turnout in the Los Angeles mayoral election, mayoral election in 2017. Okay. Voters in New Jersey and Virginia still know little about their, uh, their gubernatorial candidates. And this is all after Trump. Yeah. So, like, going to a march and stuff like that is not the same thing as understanding who's on the ballot, understanding how how things work. I watched a great TED Talk, and the guy said, I didn't understand there's a difference between governing and governance. He thought you just vote for the right guy, and then you go sit on the bench and complain all the time. <laughs> and I put this to you that, like, change in government comes from the bottom up, not the top down. It should. You know, when we're acting in a model that we were set out to have been running with, that's how it should happen, is the input comes from the people. And it's for the, it's by the people, for the, for people. the people. They uh, they did a study, in this study, or in this article, telling where they would tell people, like, facts and statistics about how their vote uh, isn't matter, or stuff like that. They, they would phrase it using rhetoric, though. Very extreme extreme terms and what they found is that when you tell people that their vote doesn't matter or that their donations don't compare to that of the corporations and super PACs they actually do less they actually put in less money sure because they feel like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter yeah I get that and so one of the great things they did in this was uh, they link it to a study where it's called From Brexit to Zika, What Do Americans Know? These are 10 questions in 2017 where they, they, they phone a random sample, a random population. It was a 1,002 people sample size. So I think that's a pretty good. Do you care to, if I test you on yeah. your knowledge? Let's have it. Let's have it. Okay. Testing. Brent. Uh, okay, question number one. Zika is spread primarily by zebras. Oh God! No mosquitoes. All right, mosquitoes. Eighty-six percent of the poll people got that correct. Okay. The water in Flint. Yep. Unsafe due to lead. Seventy-two percent of Americans got that. The Speaker of the House. Okay. Do you know who that is? Uh, the House is Nancy Pelosi. Okay. Do you know who it was in twenty seventeen? Uh, You're right, but it's yeah. It was the Ryan. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they switched. Okay, I got yeah, you. Yeah, in 2018. So Speaker of the House, but uh, they the correct answer at the time was Ryan. Sixty-two percent. Should you give Americans. me that one? I'm, oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, the country that's leaving the EU. Oh, Britain. Yeah, you can. Sixty uh, percent of Americans got that right. The this is a weird question. It's a simple answer though. The DOJ lead Russian investigator. The lead Russian investigator. The special is, counsel. Yeah, Mueller. Yeah, Mueller. And 47% of Americans got that right. That's shocking. Yeah. I agree. I didn't know this one. The conservative GOP group in the House. What's it called? Uh, the Tea Party? Uh, no, it's now the Freedom Caucus. Oh. Huh. Okay. Yeah, I, that's what I said. I've too. heard of that. Yeah, and I, I got that wrong. Uh, Neil Gorsuch is a... Supreme Court Justice. That's yeah. correct. Forty-five percent of Americans got that right. The Secretary of State. In twenty seventeen. You can go either way. If you know the current one, that's cool. Well, the current one's Pompeo. But back then, yeah. it was that oil guy. Rex. Yeah, Rex Tillerson. Rex Tillerson. Yeah. That's who I could remember. I couldn't get Mike Pompeo off the top of my head. Uh, President of France. Macron. Macron. 
Uh, 37% got that. That's not shocking. 44% got the Secretary of State. Uh, do you know the unemployment rate? The unemployment rate is like, now it's like 3.5 or something like that. Was 4%. 37% of Americans still got that one too. Hmm. You did good, man. Nice. Yeah. So, America didn't do too bad. But then they took that data and they broke it down. And by age groups, 18 to 29, the average correct was 4.5, 4.8. The right answers, age groups 30 to 49, was 5. Well, I did better than my age group. You did. So, 50 to 64, 6. Got average of 6 questions, right? 65 plus got 5.5. It's because the older folks don't care about certain things, so I don't mean that in a... Yeah. So, uh, Republican-leaning people got 5.7, right? Mm -hmm. And Dem-leaning people got 5.5, right? Fairly close. I, I think, honestly, everything is pretty close so far. Mm -hmm. Then you get to education. High school or less got 4.3 questions, right? Okay. Some college got 5.2. College grads got 6.9. You've learned the value of information. And information. And literal information. Literal information. So, education is going to be definitely a topic coming up. Oh, yeah. Um, again, linking things to the narrative. Here. Very cool. The com like communism scare during the 50s and um, basically all the scandals, wars, and everything since has really led to a decline in our involvement. Yeah. And when we have the decline in involvement, we also have a decline in communications, and that is when we see... Less understanding. Less understanding yeah. and atrocities, honestly. Yeah. Um, so I argue that we are in a dangerous, a more dangerous state of tribalism than we ever have, and that trying to uh, stamp it out for the sake of stamping it out will never work. It's a different kind of context than we've ever had, for sure. Yeah, I think we've all we've had several instances where we've had extreme tribalism and like extreme conflict. I mean, back in 1800, we came darn near close to having a civil war. We did have a civil war, and, and I'm not saying we're heading back towards a civil war, but, but I feel like we're like it's almost like guerrilla warfare. Look at the tribalism in the civil war, and again, I'm gonna say there was not near the level of communication that we had today. No, you're right. And if you look at these atrocities, I think those will be the two things you see. Lack of a breakdown in communications between tribes, and a lack of civic engagement. You could almost say though that, you, and you're right, less communication then. Now it's like the opposite. It's so much communication inundation. But it's not. It's not. There is no communication between the tribes. It's intertribal communication is rampant. Sure. And that's where the the danger is because you can go days, months, Because years. in those tribes, they're not communicating. They're not yeah, communicating. And the echo chambers are vast, never-ending now. Like, you could stick on to any CNN. Topic. Yes, on any topic. You can pad yourself on any room if you would like to. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to quote Brene Brown. I'm a little proud of this. Brene Brown is a little out there for people, uh, I guess, but she would appease to the people who don't like Jordan Peterson, I'm going to guess. So... Or the people that didn't used to. Uh, she talks about like the importance of um, the dehumanization process. Okay. And that's what I think we're into now. When tribes don't communicate, we're able to dehumanize people. Sure. And she talks about Michelle Maisie, who's the chair of philosophy at the Department of Emmanuel College. Um, she says that the psychological process 
of demonizing the enemy, making them seem less than human, and hence not worthy of humane treatment is what dehumanizing is. Yep. And it starts with creating an enemy image, which identity politics is really good at. Mm -hmm. um, and she says, once we see people on the other side of a conflict as morally inferior and even dangerous, the conflict starts to being framed as good versus evil. Mm -hmm. And like, this is a very fast breakdown. We're right there wrong. Um, they hate Israel. Sound like something like that? Right. Dehumanization has fueled innumerable acts of violence, human rights violations, war crimes, and genocides. It makes slavery, torture, and human trafficking possible. Justifiable. Yep. De dehumanization others is the process by which we become accepting of violations against human nature, the human spirit, and for many of us, the violations of the central tenets of our faith. Hmm. And dehumanization, she says, always starts with language often followed by images. You can see that with the Reds in their propagandist attack on Germany during World War II. Yep. Like, first comes the language. Yep. Same thing with the Nazis. It, that's exactly the point. Same it, thing with slavery. They called Jews rats and depicted them as disease-carrying rodents in everything from military pamphlets to children's books. In Rwanda, they called the Tutsis cockroaches. Indigenous people are often referred to as savages. Serbs called Bosnians aliens. Yep. Throughout history, um, slaves were considered subhuman animals. And we have... To, I, I like this. This book that I'm quoting from is called Braving the Wilderness, and I really recommend it. Um, it's going to change your mind. She talks about the courage to embrace our humanity. Um, when we reduce Muslim people to terrorists... Or Mexicans to illegals or police officers to pigs it says nothing about the people we're attacking it does however say volumes about who we are and the degree to which we're operating in our integrity hmm. yeah. I'm guilty of this sure. like I full, full out on it on Twitter I am a terrible human being I'm gonna try to get better on that makes you brave though go online and doing whatever right and she talks about get that. it out there it's easy it, it's easy to do it on the internet because there's this sense of anonymity she has a book uh the chapter i'm reading from actually is called people are hard to hate close up move in <laughs> and um interesting <clears throat> yeah it really does do a nice job she talks and then she talks about like addressing other people making sure this doesn't devolve into dehumanization uh, dehumanizing people and she says it's easier to stay civil when we're combating lying than it is when we're speaking truth to bullshit when we're bullshitting we aren't interested in the truth as a shared starting point i think both of us both sides not us but both sides do that yeah they definitely. um it just goes bad so fast when we gets nasty people yeah. don't start like thinking about the consequences of words and then it gets out of hand Speaking truth to bullshit and practicing civility starts with knowing ourselves and knowing the behaviors and issues that both push into our own BS or get in the way of being civil. Hmm. Like, being civil is the best part. Um, she talks about all these beautiful connections, uh, shared connections that um, she's had in a... In a chapter called Hold Hands with Strangers. I feel like this is going to be really hard for some people to read, but I really recommend it. Yeah, it's, I think it's got some interesting points to, to take away, for sure. Um, 
I love this. Last thing I'll you know read from her thing is here's why we need to catch these moments of human spark and be grateful for them. When you walk onto the pitch in Melbourne and ask the audience to stop singing the Liverpool anthem and start talking about Brexit, you've got a problem. Turning on the lights in the theater and ask the Harry Potter fans and their parents to discuss the pros and cons of public schools versus private schools versus homeschooling, Voldemort will look friendly. But we're more willing to speak out. Uh, we're more willing to speak out moments of collective joy and show up for the experience of collective pain, for real in person, not mm. online. Yeah. Uh, the more difficult it becomes to deny our human connection, even with people we may disagree with. Not only do moments of collective emotion remind us of what is possible between people, but they also remind us of what is true about the human spirit. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. It kind of gets to the things we talked about in terms of like how do you tribe, you know, how do you combat this you know, tribalism, or at least make people aware of it so they can act upon it. And it gets down to finding that common cause, you know. And like today, you know, you see people uniting around climate change. Yeah. You know, we've talked about it a lot, and it's the one thing that we are all in it for. We all live on this planet. Got to make it. If we if we need an enemy to unite the tribes, let's not make it people. Let's not make it each other let's yeah. make it a real threat that we have yep and imminent something that has to be acted upon yeah there was a, a ted talk that this gentleman from i believe it was jacksonville florida their community was having problems with race relations and they had a community round table where everyone could come in and talk and he said there were like kkk members there sitting next to people who marched arm in arm with martin luther king jr and it was when they were all at the table together talking that they were able to learn their shared experiences, their differences, what the problems they had and understanding. I, I assure you, as hard as it is to put up with people you don't like, it is essential. Yeah. And it is essential to give all people uh, a seat at the table. You will not... You will not um, silence voices by not allowing them to speak right they just become louder in, in their own echo chambers and you know become like a pressure cooker yeah right and, right and explode so i encourage you all to be involved and yep. um don't just go to a march don't just give money to the nra and say oh, i'm a member if you believe in guns and that's your thing learn about it be passionate about it mm -hmm. talk to people who aren't against it and try to learn why? Why? Exactly. And and there's no problem telling your reasons why, but you need to be able to hear both sides. Um, we can is... respectfully disagree. Exactly. But you don't have to hate each other for it. The civil discourse uh, is a problem. Yeah. And um, we just have to connect. We have to find a return to social capita, if you will. Yeah. So At least increase it. Yeah. What do you think, everybody? This is our, uh, this is our take on tribalism, and it's history its evolution uh where we're at today with it yep and there's a lot of information in between for you guys to research and much more we did not get to but we wanted to of course and that's the beauty of doing it in this format we just kind of let it flow and get to what we can and the rest will leave to you guys to form your own opinions and then comment and let us have it agree with us whatever it may be hope you've enjoyed this abstract adventure into tribalism and the decline of social capita and how it's influencing America. Beautiful. <laughs> On that note, thanks for listening. Have a good day, everybody. Have a nice week.